National Fire Radio. National Fire Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. This week, the week of May 8th, all new episodes. Two weeks ago, we had FDIC. We were on location. We shot a ton of content, worked on a bunch of projects with different manufacturers. It was an incredible week. Um, and then the following week of uh, May 1st, we kind of ran uh, some reruns as well as um, content that was shot and podcasts that were uh, recorded at FDIC with some great people. And so that was a lot of fun. That was last week's lineup. This week's lineup, though, we're back to it. All new episodes. And so sit back, enjoy. Thanks for joining us on the National Fire Radio podcast. Check out The Size Up by Robert Pepero, our buddy Pip, the little guy with the mohawk. Every Tuesday is his episode, as well as the rest of the week is filled out with all new content and interviews with great guests that support the National Fire Radio community. Thanks for tuning in. Check it out this week. We appreciate you, and do me a favor. Give us a half a second of your time and listen to the sponsors that help make National Fire Radio's podcast possible. Hey, guys, before we start the podcast, real quick, I want to mention the Gone to Texas Fire Forum and Expo being held in Arlington, Texas on June 9th and 10th. Myself, I'm going to be emceeing the event for two days with nationally renowned speakers that will be there for the weekend. Mo Davis, Clyde Gordon, Rick George, Mickey Farrell, Jacob Johnson, Dennis Riley, and so on. The list goes on and on. I was there last year, helped MC the event last year. It is a growing conference in an incredible venue. Globe Life Field, which is home to the Texas Rangers in Arlington, Texas, right in the entertainment district, right at the PBR bar, which we're going to have a social after the first night. I'm telling you right now, there's no other venue like this. The room actually overlooks the field. You get to walk stadium it is such a cool venue arlington texas june 9th and 10th check them out go on to texasfireforum.com or go to facebook and look them up there too go on the texas fire forum where you can buy your tickets get great hotel rates and if anybody's asking you where you're going this summer you tell them go on to texas this episode's brought to you by taylor's tins taylor and his crew at taylor's tins have been manufacturing aluminum helmet fronts since 2017 with over 200,000 tins in the market they are a leader in the helmet front space custom design one-offs to department orders they can turn them around within 24 to 48 hours customer service is what they pride themselves on and they provide nothing but top shelf product and service to their customers Check them out at taylorstins.com and check out their full line of product offering. They've always been a very strong supporter since day one with the National Fire Radio podcast and platform. And Taylor and his crew have become dear friends of ours, and we appreciate the support. And at checkout, for a little extra bonus, use coupon code NFRSENTME. That's NFRSENTME for a discount on your order. Exclusions do apply. Anyway, check out taylorstins.com for the latest and greatest offerings from Taylor and his crew. And in the words of Taylor, stop burning up leather. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the National Fire Radio podcast today. This is, uh, this is one I've been waiting for. I had a strong arm, this guy, to join me on the podcast. And I'll get into the backstory as to how I got him to get on. I had to leverage another interview, and then I hit him on the back door and said, listen, man, you gotta, I'm going to do you a solid. you got to do me a solid. I'm making it sound a lot more you know, glorious than it was, but uh, it was literally just a, a big ask for me. So today I want to welcome District Fire Chief of the Boston Fire Department, Joe Minahan. Joe, welcome to the show, brother. 
Thanks for having me, Jeremy. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, this is surreal for sure. What? Okay, surreal, my ass. Get out of here, bro. That's crazy. This is this is so fun because I, you know, I get to meet incredible people. We met at FDIC, so it was nice to shake hands and you know get to yes, get to meet each other face to face. You were hanging around trying to capture, you know, grab my attention. I'm like a, a just a spinning top at events like that, so my brain's going a thousand miles a minute and so on. But it was nice to cat, you know, catch a few minutes with you, and uh, I'm very much looking forward to the conversation today with you. Um, I know how deep your roots go in the Boston Fire Department and the American Fire Service um, goes back into the 1800s with your family's legacy. You're a fourth generation firefighter in Boston alone. Uh, and that's just including the Minaham name. But then there's also some relation that goes even prior to that, correct? That is correct. Yes. Uh, so when my uh, great grandfather had come to the United States in the late 1890s, uh, he obviously fell in love, met a woman. Uh, they got married. This guy's, uh, this, uh, her father was a, uh, was a, a firefighter already. He was a district chief at the time. Uh, you know, some people tell it he came on in around 1874. Wow. So, uh, f- so since about 1874 till now, uh, somebody in my family has been, been kind of hanging around the, the fire department. You know, it's um, it's one of those jobs. Like when you talk about the inner city, especially the Northeast, New York City, Boston, right, the, Philadelphia. These are cities that are very much ingrained with a lot of families that have come up through the ranks. I mean, you're a fourth generation firefighter with the Minahan name. Plus, there were people prior, as you just said. I mean, when you start looking at that and breaking it down, man, legacy firefighting four generations, that's pretty wild and powerful. But you're probably not the only family that has legacy roots like that in the Boston Fire Department. No, definitely not. There there are, uh, I mean, I couldn't even count how many in, in the past and, and up until now. I think there are, there's at least one other family that has four generations uh, on the job. So that's very cool, man. I was scrolling through, I was online. I was doing a little homework, right. And so on. And, um, you know, believe it or not, I do a little bit of homework before I hop into episodes, you know, I'm not the, the most, uh, studious guy here where, you know, I do a tremendous amount of educating myself because I like to learn through the conversation like the listener does, but I, I get the background bullet points, but I'm going through the roster list of the Boston fire department of like all the members and it's just so funny looking at all the Irish names and just that, that it, you know, that Irish blood that runs just wildly through the, the Boston Fire Department over all these generations. I mean, it's just yeah. very cool. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I assume most people, I mean, I guess I assume because I, I know this, but um, it was it was a job that you know nobody wanted. Nobody would take yes. because it was very dangerous. And uh there weren't the safety rules and there weren't the procedures and there, there wasn't the, you know, the, the safety culture that we, we kind of have now where, you know, people were expendable, right? So you, you get off the boat, get a job, something happens to you, they replace you with somebody else. And for a long time, you know, only the Irish would take the job. Yeah. And, and yeah, and that's wild, but you know, what comes from that though, the sense of hard work the sense of, uh, you know, being a part of, uh, you know, the fabric of the culture of the city. Like, you know, these are jobs that like nobody wanted, but we needed to have. And, you know, for the Irish to step up like that, it, it's a testament to their fortitude and their work ethic and all of it. And I love the history of all of that, especially in the Boston Fire Department. But it, it does, that was very popular throughout the fire service culture very early on in the earlier generations of firefighting. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So let's break this down a little bit, right? So you and I were talking before I hit the record button. So four, we're going to go with the four generations of the Minahans in the Boston yeah. Fire Department, right? You are fourth sure. generation. But before that, obviously, your great-grandfather came over from Ireland in 1899, soon after joins the Boston Fire Department, right? That's correct, yep. Um, his name was Michael. Uh, he came over uh, eight, late 1898, early 1899, and, uh, yeah, uh, took the first job that he could get, and it happened to be the fire department. And he ended up retiring as a chief of the fire department, a chief with him? Uh, he, he was a district chief, yep. He retired. Uh, he did 46 years, uh, 1899 through 1944. Wow. Uh, spent, you know, 46 years you know, basically uh, working, working his ass off. 46 i'm 46 years old so i mean i kid what a career back then too right in 1900s like the early 1900s that's incredible yep. right i can i can only imagine what a 46 year career was like back then that's incredible and then your grandfather right so he he ended up retiring as an engineer which is a chauffeur or driver's position right in the boston fire department uh yep so it was a, a title that we we no longer use but okay. uh yeah that was uh you were essentially um you were made a chauffeur. You you were in charge of the apparatus, and he retired. Unfortunately, a little, little early in his career, he he had ended up with a heart condition, had to leave the job. Um, but yeah, he. Uh, and and a very interesting story that you shared with me, or briefly shared, because I asked about it, was his very first fire was the Coconut Grove fire in 1942. Correct. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh my he was. Gosh. His company, uh, they, they were actually clearing a car accident or, or a car fire, excuse me, uh, about two blocks away. And, and they heard the glass breaking and uh, they started over that way and they came upon the Coconut Grove. And uh, for those that don't know, uh, major loss of life, 492 souls lost that night. Wow. Uh, this was my grandfather's very first fire. This was his uh, introduction into the fire service. Unbelievable. I mean, you know, if, and, and he stuck with it, you know, like after a night like that. I mean, that's that's incredible. But I mean, the Coconut Grove fire is one of the most historical fires on record, I think, in the United States with the loss of life. I think it's one of the highest loss of life, loss of life fires in the in the country's history, I believe. Yes, so, that's correct. What an indoctrination into the fire service. I, can't, I couldn't even imagine yeah. that. Um, and from there, your father, your father, uh, was, uh, Lieutenant Stephen Minahan. Um, and, uh, unfortunately he passed on the line of duty during a fire on June 24th of 1994. Yep. That's correct. Uh, him and his, his crew had been sent in to, to find a couple, uh, a couple of lost firefighters, uh, who had, who had got separated and were, were, uh, missing in the building. And, uh, when they went in, they did their search conditions got really bad, really quickly, uh, they went to exit and when they came out, my father wasn't with them. Wow. Wow. That's tough. And he was found later on. Uh, and unfortunately he passed from his injuries sustained at that fire. And, um, man, we're going to, we're going to break all this down uh, a little bit during, during the conversation, but, um, you know, and I appreciate you and your willingness to talk about your family and your family's legacy. And, and after your father, um, you know, you decided to join as well. And that was in August of 2001, I believe. Correct. Yeah, uh, it was never a question. Um, mm. You know, just just like my father had followed his father, I was going to follow mine. Uh, from the, I, I I can't remember the date exactly. Yeah. But I can remember sitting. Uh, my father was was assigned to Ladder Twenty Six in Mission Hill, Mission Hill section of Boston, which during the you know seventies and eighties was 
you know, two, three fires a day kind of, wow. kind of place. Uh, and, and he loved it, right? He loved going to work. He loved coming home. He loved spending time with his family. And then he loved spending time with his other family at the firehouse. Um, and he used to take us with him. Right? We used to go, and I remember distinctly, and my mother has a picture of it somewhere, of myself and my older sister sitting in the tiller, uh, the bubbles, <laughs> one of us on each side, uh, you know, our heads kind of sticking out. Yeah. And I re- that, that very moment in my life is when I decided this is what I want to do. That's powerful. I mean, not every not every kid has the the ability to remember back to when something was ingrained so heavily into them that they wanted to do that as a profession, and then you've been able to do that. And but not only that, with with all of the unbelievable stories though that you grew up with and being exposed to it, I mean, you also that is a job that also took your father away from you though. It did. Um... But I'll tell you what, what, you know, aside from obviously the tragedy of, of what happened to my father sure. and, and the circumstances surrounding it, um, the way that we were protected and the way that we were cared for by his guys and by his friends, uh, people that he had come up through the ranks with, uh, that's what sticks out to me. Like the, the idea that in their, you know, they were experiencing their, their worst of times as well. Sure. This, was, this, this was their best friend. This yeah. was their boss. This was their buddy. Uh, and they took it upon themselves to take care of us. Uh, and I think at that point, I kind of realized that the fire department isn't just fighting fires. Yeah. It's taking care of your people. Right. I, I think it's, uh, I don't know if it was maybe Patty Brown that had said this, uh, you know, when, when people need help, they call us. Right. Yeah. But then when we need help, who do we call? Right. Well, we call each other and right. we show up for each other because that's what we do. Uh, and, and that to me became the essence of the fire department. Yeah. It wasn't as much as I love, you know, uh, I love going to fires. Uh, the idea of being a family and being part of something bigger than me uh, really resonates. And that, that is important to me. And I and I'll be honest with you, I get that from the Boston Fire Department, even from my younger years of just studying the fire service. Boston Fire Department to me has always stood out as a very close knit, close grouped organization of people that are in love, not only with the fire service, but also in love with the service to the city that they truly love, which is Boston, right? I mean, there's just something about the Boston Fire Department that screams family to me. Yeah, I, I, it might be the fact that we're so, you know, such a small, big, you know, for, for a city, we're very small. Right? Yes, we're, we're, right. We're close-knit as it is, and a lot of the folks that work together grew up together in the same neighborhoods. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we watched the firefighters take care of our families as kids, and then, you know, now we, we can return the favor to the next group of kids. You know? Yeah, that hardworking, I, I, you, you think about generation after generation. I mean, you're fourth generation and still maintaining those traditions and values of the fire service, the ones that were ingrained into you. I mean, watching your grandfather, I don't know if you knew your great-grandfather, oh. watching your, you know, your grandfather, I'm sure, your father. I mean, being exposed to it like you were. It laid an unbelievable foundation, not just for a, a love for the fire service, but the importance of the values of hard work, right, and looking after yeah. one another. So there was, there was always this mysticism about about the fire service, right? The the job, right? We call it a job, but yeah. let's be honest, it's not a job. It's it's something way more than that. There's so much more to it than just showing up at work. 
And, and I don't know. I think that um, I think that's very important. Yeah. And so then as you went down that road, I mean, being exposed like you were, your father bringing you to the firehouse. Um, and unfortunately, with his passing, I mean, you were a teenager, right? 15 years old, I believe you were when your father passed away. I was. I was uh, 15. I was very angry. Uh, I hated the whole world. Uh, I, I didn't I didn't really have, uh, you know, other than knowing that I was going to eventually be a firefighter. You know, yeah. That was my, my goal. I didn't have any other direction. I mm. was kind of. I was kind of lost. Yeah. And what did that, I mean, what did that look like for you? Did you get in trouble? Were you a troublemaker? Were you, uh, did you act out? I mean, because listen, I, I've talked to many people over the years with this podcast and they all have, you know, different circumstances and situations, but it always seems that the fire service was probably what saved them or put them on the right course. I think after time and finding their way, would you say it was similar for you? Um, I don't, I don't know if it was the fire service that, that saved me. Okay. I, I think um, there were other circumstances. Yeah. There were other things that I got involved with. Uh, you know, one thing my aunt, my, my father's oldest sister had said to me, uh, you know, when I was, cause she had experienced her own set of trauma with her own kids and her own family. Mm. And, and uh, she had said to me when I was 15, again, I'm angry. I'm miserable. I hate sure. the world. I, ha I hate everybody. I just want to fight. I just want to, you know, I, I want to be, I want to be angry. Like, yeah. I just wanted to be angry. Rightfully and so. She, You're allowed to pulled, be. Yep. And she pulled me aside at a, at a barbecue. And this is a woman who I'm not the closest with, mm -hmm. but uh, she, the words that she said that night, uh, I'll never forget them. She said, you're never going to feel good about yourself until you start caring for other people. Mm. Essentially, you, you have to go help someone if you want to bring yourself back to earth. Uh, and, and I did through, through various avenues, I was able to connect, uh, with, with different camps, uh, a camp that I'm very, very fond of up in New Hampshire, uh, that, that specializes in, in children with in children and adults with special needs. Uh, I went up there and I put my life back into perspective. Really? Wow. <clears throat> wow. Wow. That's powerful. So her words really hit you at a moment in life that you needed some guidance. That's incredible. Yes. Absolutely. I, so I'm, I'm writing that down. You're never going to feel good about yourself until you start helping others. Is that what it was? Pretty, yeah. It's, you're never going to feel good about yourself until you help someone else. Okay. I mean, I, that's, that's very powerful, Chief. Very powerful. And, um, you know, you think about moments like that and for, for that to resonate and stand out with you and then for you to put action behind words – um, speaks volumes to, to you for sure. How, what, after coming around from that, you know, and then looking at the fire department and, you know, like you said, I mean, it was, it was, it was the job and the fires, but it was the aspect of family and how they, they took care of you and your family. And they, you know, and even in their darkest of times, put themselves, you know, there to support all of you. When you found the fire service yourself, right? Because you grew up with it. It was something you knew you wanted to do, had to do, right? But you had to find it for yourself. What was that? Just give me a little background as to, like, finding your way into it on your own. So that's where it gets a little convoluted, right? Mm. That's where it gets a little bit um, a little bit sticky. Okay. Uh, so I, I got on the job, um, you know, the majority of folks uh, from my time frame to get on the job have to have veteran status. You need to get, you need to go join, join the military. 
uh, do your two to four years, uh, get your veteran status, right? Come back and get a couple extra points on the exam, yeah, right, rightfully so. Mm-hmm. I mean, never take that away from anybody. Sure. Uh, I qualified for the survivor benefit, where where all I had to do was kind of pass the exam, get on, and then you know move move on from there. Gotcha. Uh, for the f- and I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip sort of ahead for the like the first ten years. So yeah, no problem. Um. Uh, for the first 10 years of, of, of the job for me, I tried my hardest to not be Stevie's kid. Mm. I didn't want to be known as, uh, you know, Steve's son who got the job because his father was killed in the line of duty. Right. Uh, I didn't want that. Mm-hmm. So I spent, I spent a lot of my time pretending like, and this is going to sound wrong, but I pretended like I didn't love the job. And I pretended like I just came into work and I went home and that was it. Wow. Uh, you know, I shut the scanner off at home. I didn't listen to it anymore. I just, I wanted to be separate from, from what I thought other people thought of me, which completely irrelevant when you think about it in the grand scheme. Yeah. Uh, I had a, I had a Lieutenant um, who I didn't quite get along with at one point who told me, and he told me, you have a chip on your shoulder. You have this massive chip on your shoulder you need to get rid of it uh, or you're going to be considered an asshole for the rest of your career. Mm. And, you know, he said that I was probably two or three years on the job at that point. And it took me until probably, probably 2018 to realize how right he was. Wow. So we're talking 15 years. I, 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 I let that sit and uh, he was right. I, I had a chip on my shoulder, but it wasn't the chip as in, you know, I'm better than everybody. It was, it was the chip that said, do you really belong here? Mm. And, and I, I needed to prove myself separately from proving uh, that I was Stevie's kid. Yeah. That's wow. What? Wow. That's powerful. So let's, uh, let's unpack that a little bit. So what, what I find really, I mean, it's hard enough to be a generational firefighter, a legacy firefighter for anyone, right? Because you have to find, your own path, your own way, your own style, your own delivery, all of it, right? But to be shadowed by such tragedy and then get into the job, uh, you know, partly because of that, right? On top of your own hard work to get there, but but then to find your own way, I mean, that's got to be incredibly challenging. And it makes absolute sense why there was a, a walls put up or a guard put in place for yourself, right? You had to prove to yourself you belong there. You have to find your own way. Right. I had to find my own way. I had to find my own niche. I had to find my own, you know, what is my purpose on this job? Uh, and for me, that, that came, uh, you know, probably in, I don't know, 2006, 2007, we kind of started doing kind of bringing writ to the forefront. It, mm. it, it was never really a thing before. We had never really talked about it, but you know, we had uh, at the time he's since retired, but one of the world-class uh, instructor, Sandy Lassa, mm-hmm. who, who kind of brought writ to Boston. And um, the first time we had done the drills, I was introduced to the long log out, which in, in for us, we had renamed after my father. Wow. Uh, and, you know, it was now the Minahan drill. And this mm. is how you get out when you get when you get lost. And uh, the light bulb, you know, the proverbial light bulb went off in my head. And I said, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is a, if I can do 
If I can make one firefighter safer by teaching this to somebody, maybe not this particular drill, but something having to do with self-survival and rescue and, yeah. and, and rapid intervention, if I can make one person safer, then I've succeeded. Hmm. Uh, and at that point, I, you know, I went, I went to instructor school and I, I tried to get involved in, in different organizations, uh, got involved with the, the Mass Fire Academy, had the fortune of, of working with some amazing people. Uh, and I know one of them you've had on your podcast a couple of times, uh, Dave Gallagher or sure. OG, Absolutely. as they call him. Uh, him and I taught a few classes together and, you know, he, he turned to me and said, Hey, why don't you come up and, uh, come up and try the fools out? And I was like, all right, whatever. It sounds weird, but let's do it. Uh, and, and you know, he, he introduced me to Rusty Ricker and, uh, the rest is kind of history. Yeah. Uh, it just took off from there. You know, I just, uh, I, that spark that I, that I, that I had that was hidden was reignited. Mm. So, jobs. yeah, no problem. It's all good, man. Turn that off. We got, <laughs> I love it. We're going for a ride. No. <laughs> oh, God. I love it. Uh, we're not cutting that out, by the way, unless we have to. I, I absolutely love that. <laughs> this episode's brought to you by Teledyne FLIR. Teledyne FLIR is the originator and creator of thermal imaging technology. In 2013, FLIR launched the K-Series camera for the public safety sector, in particular firefighting. They have created cameras over the last 10 years for every position on the fire ground. From tactical to situational, their cameras help us make the right decisions on the fire ground. So check out Teledyne FLIR, check out their product offerings, and engage them on their social media and ask them for more information and education in regards to their product. Teledyne FLIR is producing one of the best cameras on the market, and they're a proud sponsor and partner of the National Fire Radio podcast. So go over to www.fleer.com and look up the public safety file, and you'll find the latest offerings from Teledyne FLIR. That's great, man. <laughs> Listen, man, it's a fact of life, right? But here's, yes. here's the thing, right? Like that moment where you found teaching, right, that – the Minahan drill, right? And, and named, you know, named after your father. Is that a moment for you that like the, the light bulb went off that, that spark that you mentioned was like, you know what? I, I can make an, I can make an impact. I can do it on my terms and this is maybe how I can do it. Is that what that was? Absolutely. That was, that was the, the moment, uh, you know, although I didn't begin, you know, I, I never really got the, the opportunity to, to kind of teach alongside Sandy. And- yeah. And, you know, get that opportunity. But, um, yeah, it was definitely a moment for me where I said, this is this is something that I should be doing. That's that's strong, man, because I, I think about what that could do, what that probably did for you. Right. Is like, I you know, and I, I don't want to, like, put words, you know, uh, try to think that I understand what you were going through. I don't. But I can see how you might have been lost in a way and and that now you have purpose, direction something that is yours that you can take ownership of, right? And plant your flag on that in a way to say like, nope, I belong here and this is what my legacy is going to be. This is what Joe Minahan's about. Is that true? 
That's yeah, that's pretty accurate. Um, I kind of feel like, and I think if you talk to any of the guys that, that I, that I have the fortune and uh, you know, the, the opportunity to teach with, they'll, they'll say the same thing. I get very passionate about uh, safety and survival. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of my, you know, it, it's kind of the hill that I'm willing to die on for, mm. you know, figuratively. Well, it, I mean, it makes sense, brother. I mean, it absolutely makes sense. So, I mean, fast forward a little bit then. So that's a few years back and you're starting to find your, your place in, and you're starting to realize like, Hey, I belong here. This is, this is for me. Um, did the, did the love for the job change at all? Like, were you, you said how you would, you would go to work and you'd come home and keep the scanner off and you wanted to make it look like you were not into the job. Like it wasn't, you know, like that whole thing. Right. And then. Like now, I know you're very much into the job, and I know that uh, you have an un- unrelentless, you know, uh, passion for what the job stands for, the Boston Fire Department, all of it. So, like, is that when the switch was thrown and you kind of started coming back around and saying, like, no, it's okay to be in love with this job. It's okay to find other people and start pushing myself forward and, and making my, you know, planting my flags along the way? It, it was definitely right around then. It was kind of a catalyst for me to pick up the books, right? Uh, there to, you go. To realize that it's, you know, it's no longer about just me. Mm. Uh, it, you know, uh, I, I want to be somebody that other folks can look up to now. Uh, I'm, I'm done being the, the guy that hides in the shadows. Uh, I, w- I want to be involved. I want to get, you know, I want to get myself out there. And I want to prove, you know, to I, I only had to prove to myself. I didn't have to prove to anybody else right, right, right. That, I, that I belong. Right. Uh, I, I had to prove to myself. And I think, you know, taking that instructor course and meeting some, some people that I never would have met otherwise, uh, that was the proof I needed. That was it. How important are people around you? Like guys like OG, right? Dave Gallagher, who's been on the show. He's a dear friend. I, I talk to him as often as I can and I'm pushing him to write a memoir and, and all oh, of it, right? Please I, do. Please I am. Me. I Listen, I have been on him for three years now to start putting his thoughts down on paper and to start putting together a memoir because his, his impact, the, the stories he has, the things he's been involved with, the people he knows um, could just lay such an incredible blueprint for so many to learn from. Uh, I think Dave is a very special person. I'm glad that you found him. Yeah, and I honestly... I think he might've found me, right? Uh, we, <laughs> I get it. We, we taught a class together, uh, uh, basically a writ for dispatcher class. And, uh, you know, he walked up to me and he was like, Hey, I'm, I'm Dave. I was like, Oh, who's this old guy? You know, I don't know this guy. I love it. Uh, and probably 10 minutes into, into talking with him. I said, I, I, I gotta be friends with this guy. Yeah. He is, he is everything that's good about the fire service. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, he, he still inspires me every time I talk with him. And um, I do put him on a pedestal of being one of the most special people that I do get to talk to for sure. What does somebody like that do for you? Like, is that like, do they just push you to be better now that you've, in your words, come out of the shadows, if you will? Like, do you, do you realize now and value or that boss that told you to get your chip off your shoulder that made you kind of maybe refocus and say, what am I doing here? What's my purpose? Like, are those, how important are people like that? Oh, you, you couldn't move forward without them, right? You, you need to be, uh, you need to be pushed a little bit. Right? Yes. You need to be taken out of your comfort zone, right? You know, what's, what's the saying? Like you never, uh, a calm sea, never a sailor made, right? Mm, you, you, yes. you, you need to experience some sort of adversity if you're going to be better than you were yesterday. 
Uh, Go ahead. The reason why there's a break right now is I'm writing that down because I think that's a very powerful message. Need you, you need to experience adversity and adversity comes in so many different ways, but I like, I firmly, firmly believe that I love that need to experience adversity. It's the only way you're going to get better and push yourself forward. Right. If you, yeah. I mean, if everything's calm seas, right. Every single day, when the challenge comes, you're not going to be up to the challenge. hundred percent. And that's, that's true in everything. And, and listen, you're, the adversity for me might be different than adversity for you. And it might that's be right. different for, for so-and-so. It, it is what it is. You, you can't, you, you know, you can't base your experiences off of someone else. And that, that'll never work. That's right. So talk to me a little bit about your own experience. I mean, coming up through outside of the whole legacy firefighter thing, Boston's a fire town, uh, you know, and so on. So, and it's a, it should be said, it, like you said before, it's a small, big city, right? So the size of the department, how big is the Boston fire department? Uh, we have about 1600 members. Okay. And then how many company, what do you have engine truck companies? Uh, 30, I think it's 33 engine companies, 20, 22 ladder companies, two rescue tower companies, companies right? yeah. two rescues okay. and, and the fire boat. So the district chief position, then what is, what is that in Boston versus like the rest of the world? Is that like a battalion spot or a deputy spot or? Yeah, I would say we, we consider it like, like kind of what New York city does as far as the battalion. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm a district chief. I'm in charge of a certain area uh, of, of the city when I'm working, um, uh, yeah, I guess considered roughly around the same. I know the rest, most of the country uses battalion. Yep. So I got you. I know yeah. all, all my buddies in Jersey say battalion. Yeah, well, listen, you Northeast guys, I mean, there's a lot of district chiefs. Hartford runs district chiefs, right? Like, there's cities that run district chiefs. It's a, probably a Northeast thing, I think. But um, no, I get that. So, what does that look like for you? You like the car? Do I like the car? Um, <laughs> it was, <laughs> to put it bluntly, I don't love being the chief, right? I, I, I don't think that, um, I mean, I guess I was ready because I took the, took the sure. exam. And, no, I and, get that. And, um, I miss the fire. I miss the fires. I miss the, the inside. I miss mm-hmm. being, being in there with the guys and doing, doing with it, what we do, right? That's, but at the same, uh, on, on the flip side of that token, it was the right move at the right time. I get uh, it. You know, for my family, for myself, for, I mean, my bruised and battered body. Yeah. It was the right move. Um, I don't regret it. I don't love it, but I don't regret it. Well, I think there's something to that, right? Like if you're, if you're putting a chief's position, right? You, you promote and you get to that position, but your heart is still on that fire floor. It makes you very much in tune with the companies that are working on your behalf, right? Or that you work for actually, right? You're working on behalf of them, right? Because you, you understand that and you understand the tempo and the push on the fire ground, right? And um, I think that's super important. I also think one thing too, that was, uh, was explained to me a while back and I forget, I forget where it came from, but what I thought was really cool was, if you want to affect change in your organization, you know, it's easy. It's not very easy to do from the bottom up. But as you promote and go up the line, you know, you're a you're a line fireman. You love that. You love the fire ground. Well, then in a in the district chief's position, you can affect some change for them. Right. I think I think so. Uh, you know, and I think a big part of that is, you know, don't forget that you rode that back step. Yes. Right. The, the second you forget where you were. Uh, the second you've lost where you are, right? That's uh, no matter how 
high you make it on the job, whether it's commissioner or chief of department or whatever, uh, or no matter your success on the job, no matter what you, you know, how many medals you end up walking away with, if you forget where you came from, you've lost. Like, that's it. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. How do, how do you stay grounded like that then, right? Like, is it the individual? Is it the company you come from? Is it the priorities? Because, like, I, I think of so many people that, you know, or chiefs that you watch and they kind of lose their way as they climb the ranks, right? And I had this conversation a while back with Brian Nardelli, right? And, you oh, know, the, my, one of the best. Oh, I mean, my talk God. about a guy who never <laughs> forgot where he came from. Right. And that's my, and that's my point. Right. Is like he's now in a chief of chief of department position. And yet he constantly talks about his people and it's his people, it's people, it's people. And it's not him. It's we. And, you know, and I think that's very powerful. But so many people lose track of that as they climb the ranks. How are you staying grounded, man? I think it's a combination of all of it. Right. It, it start. I mean, honestly, it probably started probably started at home, you know, growing up where you respect everybody. It doesn't matter what, you know, uh, what their job was, you, mm. the CEO or, or the street sweeper, they, they all deserve respect. And, and, you know, you start there. And then you, as you move up, I had the fortune of having some really great bosses. Uh, my captains, my last few captains as a firefighter were, were top notch and um, they didn't forget where they came from. Right? And it was just a lesson that you took with you. Yeah. I'm right. I love that co that quote, CEO or street sweeper. I love that, man. All deserve respect. I mean, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more. What does that look like today on the fire ground? I mean, do we have good bosses? I mean, does Boston, the traditions of the Boston Fire Department are still very much alive and well. And I, and I think, you know, we talked about family. We talked about the culture that exists within the Boston Fire Department, that hard work ethic, right? All of it. I mean, it's still so important that we mentor and push the next generation forward boston still still on track absolutely I, love uh, that. I, I think i think that for sure uh there are guys on on guys and girls i mean one of the, the best chiefs on on our job is a female and and she's just i mean someone that i i look to for advice mm. you know, so it doesn't matter it doesn't matter if male female blue pink purple doesn't matter uh if if you're if you're if you're there for the right reasons, then, then yeah, it, it's going to work. Yeah. Be, be uh, of the job. Some, well, that's uh, that's the quote, right? Uh, are you into the job? Are you on the job or are you into the job? Yeah. Right? Joey and, D. And, mm -hmm. and one of these, you know, uh, just about every, every chief that I've had in the last few years has been into the job. I, 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 one in particular, his name's Bobby Dowling. Uh, he's 62, 63 years old. And he is still as into the job now as he was when he came on in 1982. Right? That's, that. that's just unbelievable, right? That, that's the kind of person that I want to try to be like when I, when I get to that position, right? when I get to, you know, that kind of longevity on the job, uh, I, I want to be like that. Yeah. And you know, what's really cool for you to say that is, you know, a while back you didn't, right? Like, and, no, it's true. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I just love, I mean, there's, there's something to be said for that because, we, you know, a, a, a career in the fire service is a span over many, many, many years. And there's a lot of highs and lows, peaks and valleys. And it's, you know, ultimately it's how you end your career. And, you know, if you're having a rough go in the beginning, do better. Pick yourself up. You know, like you have the opportunity to end on a high note. 
Um, and I think that's important, right? Like, I don't want people to think that they get pigeonholed into something unless they want themselves to be in that position their whole career. But you have the opportunity to do better if you want to do better, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, and that, that it, it kind of goes to, you know, both both the at-work culture and the out-of-work culture, right? Mm. Being part of the firehouse on and off duty. Love that. It, it doesn't mean you need to come into the firehouse and hang out, right? It just means be part of of the job, right? What are the, you know, I think Dave Gallagher said it in one of your last, last podcasts, right? You can either be a firefighter or you can be a fire department employee. What are you? Yeah. Yeah. I, being present is so important. Learning the people that you ride with, the guy that you're riding backwards with, the guy that's sitting in the front seat, learning who their spouses are, who their children are, the, the things that they're dealing with. I, I just, I can't stress that enough. That helps build that culture within that firehouse or that fire company is being in tune, be present, be a part of the conversation. Well, that's right. Your, your return, your, excuse me, your return on investment, right? You, you invest in your coworkers, both yeah. personally and professionally. They're going to reinvest themselves into you and it's going to make everybody better. Yeah. That must, I mean, that must really resonate with you with what you dealt with, with the personal tragedy um, within your growing up and, and how influential that was on you. I have to think now more than ever, um, you are very protective of those types of relationships and making sure that families are taken care of and that your people are, are being taken care of. Oh, absolutely. And it, that, cause that's the long and short of it, right? That, that, mm. That's where, that's where the rubber meets the road. Mm. If you, if you're not there at the end of the day for your folks, then you're not there. Right? You, you mentioned be present. What does that mean to you? What does it mean to me? What, just be there. When some, they may not want to talk to you. They just may want to sit with you, right? It doesn't matter. Yeah. And, and I'm sitting here because I'm, I'm wrapping my brain around this conversation because I worry that we're not as present as we used to be in one another's lives. <laughs> And I worry that you know, the guys in the firehouse are not learning as much as they should be because they're wrapped up in their own shit and not putting their own stuff aside to learn about the other guys and girls that they're riding the fires with. And we have to make sure that we do a good job with that. And it takes guys like yourself that have been in those trenches that have lived this firsthand to really mentor and explain the importance of relationships like that. Well, yeah, that's... Because that's what it is. Let, let's be honest. I mean, we're not we're not running ten fires a day like we were in the seventies mm. and eighties, right? A lot of what we do is personal relation or yeah. personal relationships. And if you can't if you can't master that, then then you probably can't be here, right? That's uh, like what what, is, uh, what was it that uh, you know that little little short guy from Australia there, little tiny guy, Jerry. Jerry, Jerry. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah decency doesn't have a rank structure, right? It, it doesn't praise with humility and accountability with kindness. And that's what he said when he was on your show. Yes. Uh, that, that speaks volumes. Like, just be a good person. That's 90% of our job, right? Be a good person. Well, and that's it. I mean, we're, it's a, it's a service oriented job, right? So not only do we take care of the public, right? Every time we turn a wheel or open the door to the firehouse or a kid comes up for air and his tire and his bicycle on the fire department ramp, you know, out front, we're there to service the public. We need to be there for our own people as well. Right. When that alarm, oh, go, when that alarm goes off, we do, we do go to work and, and we, we provide for the people we're serving 
Well, do we have to sound the alarm bell when one of our own people needs help? We should already be dialed in. And I think that's that distinct difference that we're willing to go above and beyond for the public still. We need to do the same for our own people. And, and I just I can't stress that enough because I think that some of that's getting lost and we need to do a better job in making sure that we're there for one another and really understanding what people are going through now more than ever. There's a lot of turmoil when it comes to mental health, physical health, you know, ailments. These are things that we need to be in tune with now more than ever, Chief. I, I firmly believe that. Well, and that's that's 100 percent true. Right. We, we've made some really, really big strides uh with the peer support network, mm. critical incident stuff uh, up here. We, we have uh, an incredible framework. Uh, the captain that's in charge of it, Kevin Preston, uh, he is, he is top notch. Uh, he, he's putting everyone basically before himself. Uh, he, he's, I uh, hope he doesn't burn out because he, he really is burning the candle at both ends. Mm. But uh, we, we have an incredible framework of peer support because we know how important that is because without that, I mean, we have our EAP program, which is you know, the employee assistance stuff. It's not the same, right? Yeah. Sometimes people just want to sit and have a conversation or a cup of coffee. You never know how powerful a cup of coffee is, right? Mm. That's, uh, and that's, that, that's all part of that, you know, the good, the good human skills, right? Uh, they're vital. Be a good person. I can't, I can't stress that enough. And then you, you mentioned it, right? Like figuring out that work-life balance. You should be happy to come to work, but you should also be happy to go home. And if one of those isn't isn't jiving, then something's wrong, and you probably should sit down with somebody. Fifth generation Boston Fire Department question mark, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> I I hope right. I mean, like I you're you have children, correct? I do. I have uh, three boys and a daughter, and uh, you know, I, I've talked about it with them. And sure, I, I've made it a point to not. I, I don't want to force them into it. I get it. I don't want them to, to regretfully take the job. Mm-hmm. But if, if they want to do it, I am all for it. Uh, I, I invite them into the firehouse. Uh, my youngest son, Zach, has come into the firehouse with me a handful of times. Love it. He loves it here. Awesome. And the guys love him. He loves sitting at the table and just you know, just shooting the shit and uh, yeah. sliding the pole. And yeah. He just he loves it. And, and you know, that's, that's what kind of got me into it, right? Just coming in and hanging out with Dad. And I think that's so important. I have a lot of similar stories myself. My father introduced me to the fire service and we grew up with it. It's not, you know, he was a volunteer fireman and, you know, it was a lifestyle for us. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't his job. It wasn't his main job, but man, when he came home from his main job, that was his focus other than his family. And that shined through, you know, the fact that he was civil minded and wanted to give back to the community like he did. And that really resonated with me and stuck with me. And I think that when you lay a foundation like that, like my kids are very much aware of the fire service. My two older kids didn't go into it. I don't think my my uh, 16 year old daughter will. But my 15 year old daughter just started expressing interest. And I'm yeah. sh- I'm shocked, like floored by it. Right. And I'm awesome. like and I said to her, I said, if this is something you want to do. I said, I support you 110%, and you tell me what you want from me, and I'd be more than happy. I don't want to push it. I want her to learn on her on her way and, and do have her find her way. But, man, could I, you know, I told her, I said, you have no idea what I can help you with if you allow me to help you along the way, but we'll do it in the right way. And, um, you know, I want her to find her own love for it. But I can tell you that the early foundation of exposing them like you have with your kids and I have with mine, I think is just so important 
not just to your family dynamic and home dynamic, but also to the fire service. We need legacy firefighters. We need kids, guys, girls that come up through firefighting families to go into that family business because I firmly believe that those are some of the strongest people we can have on the line. I really do. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I'm fortunate enough if, if my kids decide that they don't want any part of this and, and that's okay, you know, I'm not going to, like I said, I'm not going to force them, but I do have, you know, nieces and nephews who, yeah. who have expressed interest. I and, love that. You know, I have a sister who is, is involved in the fire service herself uh, she's one of our, our lead dispatchers mm. here in Boston, and she does a phenomenal job. Obviously, you know, she might hear this, but I'm never going to tell. I'll never tell her that. She, <laughs> she's really good at what she does. Yeah. Uh, and whether her kids decide that, hey, I want to try this, I want to give it a go. Great. If they don't, great. It, it is what it is. Yeah, I think I think there's so much importance to that. I think every kid needs to find their way. Um, but I I also think this too, right? Like I look at, I think today more than ever guys are afraid to introduce their kids more so to the fire service than they used to be. And I think that that's, we're losing because of that in a way. I think that, you know, I think about the guys in my firehouse and their kids and how much do they expose their kids to the fire service or how many guys in my firehouse, their kids have not become firefighters. And I'm like, that's okay. But like you would expect a few of them to follow suit and they didn't. And so it's like, well, you know, did did we not value the fire service enough to kind of give them a, a head start or a push, or is it something else? I don't know, but I think we need to do a better job at protecting the sanctity of the fire service because you and I talking right now firmly believe that this is the best thing in the world, right? I mean, outside oh, of our absolutely. own family and our kids and our spouses, like, it's the fire service. It's a lifestyle. It's something we subscribe to, and we'll be firemen to the day we die, right? Because we just firmly believe it's that good. Then why, then why don't we want that for our kids? You know what I, I mean? mean? I, would, I would love it for, like I said, I would love it for my kids. Yes. Uh, and if I can steer them one yes. way or another, I will. But right. I, I am, I'm definitely not going to force them. I know it. Because I know. Because I think, I think sometimes you'll find that some of those kids that were forced onto the job by their parents maybe don't love it the way they should. I get it. And And that could be kind of what, I don't want to say ruining the fire service, but uh, it certainly doesn't help. Well, and that's it, right? And and I, I think that's a really interesting uh, way to look at it too, right? Is that, um, you know, and then finding your own path. I mean, it's very hard. It's very, very hard. And you know this more than anyone, right? You lived it. You just talked about it. Finding your own way, finding your own path is very, very hard. And for a legacy firefighter, it's so hard. You know, a kid that comes into the fire service with, with no expectation or no understanding of what it, the fire service is about and they learn on their own accord because they don't have any family roots, sometimes it's much simpler for them, right? It's uh, They learn as they go, and there's no preconceived notion or understanding of anything. When you come in, you might bring three generations of baggage with you, man. That's not yeah, that's, easy. It's not easy. Right, that's three generations of expectations, right? Yeah. Well, well, your father could do it, why can't you? Or yeah. your mom could do it, why can't you? Yeah, that, that becomes tough. Yeah, for sure. But I do believe this, and I, I believe wholeheartedly just through this conversation and getting to know you and then chatting today and just looking forward to a long friendship ahead, man. Um, I love I love where you are. I think you bring so much passion to the fire service. I've seen it. I've heard about it. Friends, mutual friends. I mean, 
That's what this is all about. I had people reach out to me and say that you got to get Joe Minahan on the show. He's got he's got a lot to share and he brings a lot to the table. And I didn't know much about you. Um, obviously, you know, you know, the legacy stories and all of that and so on. But what I think is super important is as much as we want to protect the legacy and talk about those that came before us, especially your own family, you're also forging your own path. And, and you know, we need to talk about that because you can't overshadow today. We always... You know, we, we idolize yesterday, we're fearful of tomorrow, but we don't talk about today. I think we need to talk about today. Well, that's just it, right? But, you know, we, we've gone kind of gone away from the, the idea that, that you're allowed to love the job, right? Yeah. You're, it's okay to love the job, right? Yes. Tommy Kenny, the, 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 mm. probably one of the greatest instructors in the history of this country. Yes. Uh, that, was, that was one of his lines, right? It's okay to love the job. There's yeah. nothing wrong with it. And don't be ashamed if you do. Right. If, if you love the job, yes, you, you're going to get made fun of. But you know what? You're going to get made fun of if you don't love the job. So yeah, well make it worth it. I agree with you, brother. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, we should be shouting it from the mountaintops about how good this job is. And listen, yeah. it's not all sunshine and roses. Whether you're a volunteer career, there's going to be highs and lows. But, you know, the overall view of it, it's a very good good institution and we need to be very protective of it. And I think, um, you know, doing and getting out and teaching and talking and educating promotes this job. And uh, Joe, you're doing that, man. I thank you very much. I, I really do. And I appreciate you joining me today on the show. It was freaking awesome. I love could talk to you all day. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. It's, it's been, uh, it's been, like I said, uh, an absolute honor and pleasure. I mean, this is not something that I in in my wildest of dreams would have said, like I told you before we started recording like 10 years ago, if you said, Oh yeah, you're going to be on a podcast someday. I would have told you you were a liar because I have nothing to offer. Right? 10 years ago, I felt like I had nothing to offer. Well, I can tell, well, 10 years ago, maybe you felt that way, but you still had something to offer. And I think what's incredible is, is your um, willingness to be very candid uh, in the, in the conversation today and sharing some of your story and talking about some of your struggles and how you came forward from them. Because I'll tell you right now, they're going to resonate with people. There are a lot of guys and girls out there that are carrying a lot of baggage. And I don't mean baggage in a negative way by any means. When I say baggage, I'm talking about things that have plagued them over their life or career that has either slowed them down or, or torn them down. And they need to address that, look at it, and see what they can do to come forward from it. And, you know, this conversation today can certainly inspire some people to understand that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and that you can find yourself and push yourself to be as best as you want to be, man. I love that. And you did that today for sure. And I'm willing to have that conversation with anyone that wants to have it. If anyone's having any doubts about themselves uh, whatsoever, um, I'm, I'm always available. I appreciate so. that. Where can, uh, where can people reach out if they, if they have interest, can they find you on social media or where, where can they find you? Yeah. Social media is probably the easiest. Uh, cool. I think I'm on the, the Instagram <laughs> and the, the Twitter page and the, I love it. Facey page and all that stuff. So. I love it. Well, Chief, thank you. Um, I, I'll tell you, just a, a real fun conversation with you, but also super deep and, and educational. And I think um, I think this is going to hit a lot of marks for a lot of people. Um, I just thank you for spending 52 minutes with me today, man. It just means the world. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Good. Joe Minahan, thank you, brother. Stay right here. I'm going to sign off the podcast. I'm going to come right back to you, all right? All right. I love it. Thank you. Everyone, thank you for tuning in to the National Fire Radio Podcast. District Fire Chief Joe Minahan out of the Boston Fire Department, fourth generation. A very powerful conversation about legacy firefighters. 
Um, it is not the easiest thing in the world to be a legacy firefighter and to take that to the fourth generation uh, certainly has its challenges uh, as well as highs. And um, what a great conversation today with Joe. So do me a favor, take this conversation, take it back to the firehouse and talk about it because when we talk about the job, we are making the job better. Joe Minahan, thank you, brother, for joining me. And thank you all for tuning in. We appreciate the support and the friendship here on the National Fire Radio Podcast. We'll see you at the next one. And thanks for tuning in. Jeremy, National Fire Radio.